here. This is Bo Buchanan, Arizona Lodge number two, and I'm here speaking on the level with Jim May. Jim, why don't you start out just by giving me your full name, the name of your home blue lodge, and any offices or titles you might have connected to that lodge. Oh my goodness. Well, the full name is James Harding May. My home lodge is Oriental number 20 in Mesa, Arizona. I was master of that lodge in 1993. I was grand master of Arizona in 2001. And you, you have a title today connected to the Grand Lodge? Deputy Grand Secretary at the moment. Okay. And we are today, I'm talking to Jim in the Grand Lodge offices here on Northern Avenue in Phoenix, Arizona. And the first question I like to start out asking Jim is, do you remember the first time you ever heard of this thing called Freemasonry? No, I don't. Um, let me think about that for just a second. Or the first time it started really kind of coming to mind on a regular basis or well, something? Well, it, it, I guess it started like this, as, as best I can recall it now. Uh, one of my college roommates, we stayed in close contact after college, uh, after he finished some military service and got married, uh, ended up teaching in the Mesa Public Schools, and his wife, whom I've known since before they were married, uh, was a member of uh, a Masonic youth group called Job's Daughters. When she was a young lady in Albuquerque, New Mexico, her father was a Mason. Mm -hmm. So uh, my college roommate, Bob, uh, obviously then found himself with a Masonic father-in-law. Uh, his wife, Beverly, got associated somehow, looked up the lodge in Mesa, uh, or heard somehow that there was a Job's Daughters group there that was looking for people to help out, adults to help out. And uh, having been um, an honored queen in Job's Daughters, thought that maybe she'd like to do that. Well, I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but the, the, uh, the end of that story is that uh, her husband Bob joins the lodge. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of them join the Eastern Star Chapter at Mesa. And eventually, uh, when my daughter became 11 years old, um, she joins Job's Daughters. Mostly, I'm sure that Beverly Potter had something to do with this. And you're still not a Mason. But I'm still not a Mason. Okay. No, my daughter joins Job's Daughters. Her, her piano teacher happens to be the wife of a Mason and an Eastern Star member. <laughs> And the, they know the Potters, and, and we had met, although I hadn't made really the Masonic connection. But uh, that was kind of part of the, the vast conspiracy that, that eventually got me. And I, I stayed active as an adult, as a parent with Job's Daughters for quite a few years, and found out that I was working with some really, really good quality people. All of them Masons. Masons. So eventually, I guess, the drumbeat of raindrops falling on my head finally convinced me that I should look into this and take it seriously. So I did. And uh, I can only say that if I had known I was going to enjoy it as much as I have, I should have started sooner. A lot of guys tell me that. Yep. So how long a time period it was, was it from when you, I guess, first really started thinking about masonry until the time you joined? It was probably a couple of years. My daughter started Job's Daughters in about 1980-81. Um, I ended up submitting a petition to the Lodge in early 1986. 
after having thought about it for a while before I took that step. A couple of years? A couple of years, uh, you know, almost a total of four maybe or something. But meanwhile, I had met people from not just Mesa, but from all over the state of Arizona because my daughter got active in Job's Daughters at the state level. Uh, as many of them do in that group. And so you were raised in Oriental at Oriental Lodge. That's the only lodge I've ever belonged to. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So you, you said that uh, you met a lot of these good men, uh, and then finally you decided to take the plunge. What What do you think was that that put you over the edge and said, you know what, I really want to become a Mason? Well, as I look back on it now, I'm not sure what I thought at the time, but as I look back on it now, I I think I may have recognized that there was something missing from my life. Uh, I had good friends at work, uh, but we didn't necessarily hang out together a lot. And I was finding myself in the company more and more of these men and women who were working with Job's Daughters, and that's where we began to spend some time planning for activities at the local Job's Daughters group, or as I uh, as I got into it later after I joined the lodge, as I got into it later uh, on the state level, uh, it, it just eventually came clear that these are the kind of people I would prefer to hang around with. Is there anything uh, you didn't expect or anything surprising, pleasant or unpleasant, whatever, something you discovered after joining Masonry? Um, no, not really. Um, the, the process of joining was uh, reasonably brief. I was enthusiastic about Once I finally made the, the commitment to join, I was enthusiastic about it, and I uh, remember making a phone call to the master of the lodge at the time saying, when are you guys going to get around to doing my next degree? <laughs> that, that, that set him back for a couple of seconds. He was a, he was a very, very bright guy and a good longtime friend of mine now. Uh, but I said, you know, I, I joined this so that I could get into it and get active, and I'm, I'm feeling like it's taking longer than I would like it to. So uh, that must have had some effect because then things began to move rather much more rapidly. I ended up taking the three degrees, I think, over a period of three months. Okay. Sounds about right. Yeah, it was, it was pretty typical timing. How long was it from when you joined until you became uh, Grand Master of Arizona? Well, let's see. I finished my third. I finished all the degrees in the spring of '86, and then I was um, uh, elected Grand Master at Grand Lodge in 2001. And uh, the, the progression kind of went like this. Uh, it, so, 1986, I become a Master Mason in the lodge. 1987, I get my first appointment in an officer position in the lodge. Um, I served in most of the chairs as you move around through the regular lodge progression. So I was master in 93, and then at Grand Lodge in 1994, uh, my appointment to the bottom of the Grand Lodge progressive line was announced, and I made all of those steps. So uh, it, it really, I think in Masonic terms, uh, since once I got in the Grand Lodge line, I was just as glad that it did take all that time. I know we've had some people who've had to skip through steps later because things do happen, folks move away, or folks don't get reappointed. Uh, so I think it was an advantage for me in, in uh, taking all of the steps through that line. But that, that really was pretty rapid progress. Most people, I think... Uh, don't get such a quick transition from master of the lodge to an appointment to the grand line.
I don't know why that is. <laughs> I remember when I got my letter from the grandmaster, the uh, the deputy grandmaster at the time, who was uh, told me he was going to asking me if I would accept this appointment. I opened the mail, I read his letter, I handed it across to my wife, and I said, "My dear, this organization is in a whole lot tr more trouble than I ever thought." <laughs> Yeah, of course, we both had a good laugh over that because I, I really hadn't, there was, there's no reason in my mind ever to expect, first of all, that you'll get a letter like that because most people clearly don't. And to have gotten it with so little Masonic experience really was quite a surprise. And I thought, well, it's, it's, it's flattering, of course, but the, you know some of the early thoughts through my head, even just looking at that letter, shouldn't there be people in line for this ahead of me? Right. You know, and but I didn't turn it down, so off we went. So tell me what your year was like when you were Grandmaster. Any, anything stand out to you memory-wise or things that you did during that time that were really fun and exciting? Or I think I probably had the most fun uh, presiding at the Grand Lodge session, which is the, about the last thing a Grandmaster gets to do when he's Grandmaster, because after that they hang the past label on you. Uh, we had some we had some slightly contentious issues at Grand Lodge, and it was it was interesting presiding and, and trying to and having it at least one point I think to step down from the dais and speak to some issues on the floor. Some of them were probably recommendations that I put in anyway, and you always do it that way. You don't you don't speak from the position in the east when you're advocating. You're supposed to be the presiding officer when you're in the east, not an advocate. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had some we had uh, some recognition issues that we were dealing with that got a little contentious, and uh, I had an opinion that I thought I should deliver. The craft did not share my opinion, which turned out to be okay. You know, it was right. I wish we'd done it differently, but I understand why we didn't. And life goes on. Is that something you were prepared for? The oh yeah, the politics and government that goes along with a fraternity like this. Yeah, I. I done my share of presentations in large corporations. I know how this kind of stuff works. Okay. Uh, there's, there's, always, there's always people with a better idea or a different point of view who want to be heard. And, you know, the part of our system is we give them a chance to be heard if they want to be heard. That's, it's, it's supposed to result in better decisions. And usually it does. And even though personally I would have preferred a different outcome, doesn't really matter all that much now. Is your daughter still involved in Job's daughters? No, she's uh, she's way past that. And uh, no. Any any other family involved in in the Masonic family at all? Well, as it turns out, and we only had the one child, so uh, she went through Jovi's, and that was that was the extent of her involvement. But as it turns out, and this I didn't know until I decided to see how I could join the lodge. I didn't know that both of my grandfathers had been Masons. My, my father had not, but both of my grandfathers were, one in Texas and one in Illinois. Wow. Neither of them were around at this time, of course. The, the one in Texas died, in fact, when my father was fairly young, and the one in Illinois died when I was quite young. But that was enough. Uh, Job's daughters, as you may know, and some some people do and some don't, but Job's Daughters requires that there be a Masonic relationship for the young lady who wishes to join. And 
So that caused us to go asking the question of both of my grandmothers, well, my mother, my father, and then my two grandmothers who were still alive, uh, you know, are there Masons in the family? And the answer came back from both sides, yes. Yes. So that was something I wouldn't have learned otherwise. You know, one of the things we say in Masonry is we uh, we talk about we make good men better. Um, and uh, one of the things I always like to ask, is there is there anybody who in masonry that you look up to that kind of embodies that that uh, good man that we talk about being yeah there are there are several that are worth mentioning um, one of them's dead and gone so he won't get to roll his eyes when i mention his name but uh, a past grandmaster and a longtime grand secretary of this grand lodge named robert henderson uh, i thought was a uh, he would he would i can hear him rolling his eyes from wherever <laughs> Right now, but uh, he he made a good uh, a fine impression on me. And one of my predecessors, named Bob Hannon, who just retired as the head of Scottish Rite for Arizona, was another one of those influences. Very very fine guys. And I've got uh, a really good friend who was uh, who's our immediate past Grand Secretary. Uh, we were involved in Job's daughters, both of us at the same time, both of us before we were Masons, and our daughters were in the same group. And that's George Stabline. So that's just that's just three. There's there's I could without thinking too hard, I could just start rattling off names. But uh, those are probably three significant influences. It's it's interesting how different those three are from each other. But they all had the same effect on me. They you know they encouraged me without knowing they were encouraging me, perhaps. Uh, setting an example? Just by setting an example and by making me a little more thoughtful about some things than I might have otherwise been inclined to be. So, yeah, in terms of Masonic, and uh, all the, the, the two masters of my lodge, the one who appointed me first to the officer line and then the one after him for whom I served in my first officer chair, both had uh, some some serious influence. Uh, their names are, are Pete Lewis and Robert Faulkner. Faulkner is now deceased. My college roommate would have had probably a lot of uh, influence, but he died uh, just before I joined the lodge, oh. sadly enough. And he had been master of Oriental number 20. He was had been appointed to the Grand Lodge line. Uh, I believe when he died, he was senior Grand Deacon so he would have been Grand Master about 1991 or 1992, but he died in 1986. Oh. So there's, there's some influences. Uh, another one of my college roommates, like I, later went on to join the Masons. Uh, he moved out of, out of Arizona after teaching here in the Valley for a while and getting another degree from ASU. I haven't seen him much lately, but I think it's interesting that he decided to become a Mason as well. How has masonry changed you as a man, if it has at all? Well, I think it probably has. That's really an evaluation that probably ought to be done by someone other than me. Um, I think it's made me, uh, I think it helps smooth off some rough edges. Not that there aren't plenty left. Um, you know, we have some catchphrases as masons, and, and one of them is, you know, how, how much time we spend on trying to, keep polishing that rough ashlar and I'm convinced that at least in my case there's still a lot more polishing and smoothing that needs to go on but I think the fraternity gets credit for 
and some of the people that I admired in the fraternity get credit for helping me pay attention to that kind of stuff. So what do you do, and you've been through the grand line, you've been a past master, what's, what's your, I don't know, for lack of a better term, what's your mission in Freemasonry, or what do you spend your time doing, or what's important to you in Masonry today? Well, I think my, to be fair, um, I really enjoyed Scottish Rite, by the way. Um, I got into that, I was talking with some of our prospects last night at my lodge. Uh, the lodge was doing a first degree, and I sat out with, with these guys, and we had an interesting conversation. They're thinking about joining. They're on their way to petitioning. And uh, one of them had a question about the Scottish Rite and the York Rite and what my experience was, if any. So I, I explained to them that I, I just really got interested in Scottish Rite. I chose to join. I think it was probably those two guys from my lodge, Pete Lewis and Bob Faulkner, who were both very active in Scottish Rite here in Phoenix, got me thinking about it. So I went through the fall reunion right after I finished my degrees in the spring. And uh, I was impressed by the, uh, uh, the ritual, the acting, the theatrical skill. I have a big streak of ham. <laughs> And uh, they knew that, of course. And so I got, uh, it was suggested to me by several people that I pay particular attention to one part in a particular degree. And I found out that in their minds, they already had me ticketed to be the replacement for the guy who was doing it. And this is including the guy who was doing it that later became quite a close friend. So Scottish Rite really captured my imagination. Uh, and I'm still active to a point. I'm in a few degrees, I direct one. Uh, I ran the uh, the lighting crew for years. Mm -hmm. uh, that was fun, being being backstage and also on stage because I was in some degrees, but when I wasn't in degrees, and mostly I, I was in like two or three. Doing that much at a busy time. Yeah, busy yeah, well, we used to do three-day reunions, and it really was quite a quite a grind. It, it's By the third day, everybody was just a little edgy and touchy. Because <laughs> it was... It was we were down there at 6.30 every morning and not out of there until 5 o'clock at night. Yes, yes, they fed us breakfast and lunch, and, but, but it was degree after degree after degree after degree. It, it, I felt sorry for the candidates having been one uh, originally that, that we were basically spraying them with a fire hose of, of degree you know, and expecting them to absorb, which of course they don't. Um, but it really captured my imagination, and I, I learned a lot more, I think, about the content of the degrees from having a script in front of me and having to uh, direct lighting cues and sound cues and curtain cues. You actually read the words. Huh? Uh, well, we had the script and then the script was annotated so that you knew when to run the light cues and I would be in, we had headsets so I was in contact with the sound crew and checking up on upcoming sound that they had to play or mics to bring up, mics to take down or music to play because they had a lot of background music that was recorded. Uh, introductions, exits, and between-scenes music was all on reel-to-reel -reel tape in those Ooh, days. Wow. So, and those guys were really good, and my friend Bobby Faulkner from Oriental was one of them. Um, and Bill Robertson, our Grand Secretary, was another one. Uh, so that was fun. I really got, there's, there's nothing like seeing those degrees and following those degrees closely for a period of, of years to get you familiar with what they're about. And it's, it's a, it was a lot easier than trying to pick it up from having seen them once, which is all a lot of Scottish Rite members actually do, is see the degrees once. And, and then maybe read a book about them 
because I actually got exposed to them twice a year for a period of years and had to pay attention to what was going on. You know, where is where is he so we can hit him with a spotlight? Is he where he's supposed to be? And, you know, we didn't have the spotlight operators following uh, cues. So I was giving, uh, the, whoever was doing the directing at the time, and, and uh, after a while it got to be me a lot of the time, <laughs> uh, would be, uh, you know, giving a verbal cue to the spotlight guy to pick up this particular stage character, you know hit him with a soft spot and he's make it kind of large because he's going to move around. And, and then you have the unpredictability of actors who aren't where they're supposed to be, which is all of course. Of but anyway, that's, that's the, the theme life part. of a director. So, so yeah, so the theater part of it was, was, was really fun. We had a, a really nice uh, little auditorium. The, the facility is still there in the downtown Phoenix building. We had all sorts of stage lights and room lights. We had a... Uh, we could we could do we could set scenes we could set a scene on stage while we were acting out in front and we had two levels out in front that we could act on so we had a, an upper stage come down three steps and there was a pretty good size mm -hmm. stage area not with a curtain the upper stage had a curtain pretty good size stage area we was could this use the blue room or in this the was room? no this was in the first floor auditorium oh. on the south side of that building okay. which is still there yep. So you could act on stage level, you could act on the first stage apron, or you could act at the front of the main floor. And typically in those degrees, some of the, uh, some of the, the furniture or the lodge altar would most often perhaps be set on the main floor. And some of the action would go on, on, the, on three steps up from there, and other scenes would go up behind the curtain three steps up from there. Wow, I love this. It was really a cool little setup. The room was very friendly acoustically. We had all the, all the, all the actors were mic'd, even those who pretended they didn't need a mic. Uh, it was that was fun. So that's my experience with Scottish Rite. Like I said, I'm still active there a little bit. What's your, right now? Most of my activities focused on my lodge. So okay. And are you a member of just one lodge? Just the one. Just the one. Okay. But I concluded a long time ago, having gone through all the years at the Grand Lodge level that I did and still am that if, if masonry is going to be successful, it's not going to be the cause of Grand Lodges. Sadly, in some cases, maybe despite Grand Lodges, but let's assume that they're at least benign, but it's really going to happen in local lodges if it works. And it doesn't work all the time, and the things that worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. And you've got to figure it out. Stuff yeah. changes, yeah. and... Here we are, we're an organization where we, we want to keep our traditions and we're in some cases quite adamant about keeping them, but the world around us is moving along and if we don't at least get swept to where we can maintain contact of some sort, then we just get relegated to being a historical curiosity, which is a shame because we've got so much potential. Right? There we are. That's the frustration. Of, <laughs> that's the dinosaur's perspective now that I'm a dinosaur on, on masonry. And most of the problems we talk about today are the same problems that I talked about with my friends in the line, my predecessors and successors as grandmaster. And they were the same problems we were talking about when I was master of my lodge. And they were the same problems because I read some some history. They were the same problems that grandmasters were talking about in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. Well, yeah. even now I'm going through the Master Craftsman series for Scottish Rite and I go back and I read the 
book and I read introductions and stuff by Albert Pike, and they were facing the same issue oh, yeah. back then. Sure, so and the opinions were just as divided, yep. and, and the rationales were the same. You know, yep. we should do this and we shouldn't do this. And <coughs> Al was uh, Uncle Al, as I like to call him, was Uncle was, Al. <laughs> Uncle Al was a very prolific writer uh, and a very prolific assembler and editor. Uh, it, it's one of those. It, it's one of those. Uh, Secrets of Scottish Rite, in a way, you have to you have to start reading his stuff to realize that what he really was was more of a compiler than anything else. A whole lot of what's in that that famous book called Morals and Dogma is is compilations. He had a point to make, which was that many of these systems of philosophy and religion contain equivalent elements. That a lot of this is common across cultures and across centuries, and across movements. And he made it quite well in Morals and Dogma, but you do have to suffer through hundreds and hundreds of pages to get it. It's not like he only makes it once, though. He beats it into your head in almost every little lecture that he puts in there that's called a degree. So, But, but that's, that's the product of a, a guy who had some really well-developed literary skills from a previous century when, when an educated man, and I'm not that well-educated, but to read Morals and Dogma, you've got to know some French, you've got to know some Greek. It would help if you knew some Latin. It would help if you knew some Hebrew, because my edition still has all those characters in it. Oh, wow. I have to look at that and say, what? What's, what's one of the more fun or funny memories you can remember from your time in Masonry? <laughs> oh, let me think. Um, I was... Um, <laughs> My, my two principal uh, mentors from the lodge, uh, Lewis and Faulkner, uh, used to kid about wanting to, when the junior deacon does a, a little piece of ritual at the opening of the lodge and he talks about keeping off cowans and eavesdroppers, that, uh, that uh, we, should, we should do that sometime as evens and cow droppers. And uh, I was sitting in the junior deacon's chair one night. I think it was after I'd been a master, perhaps. And I thought, hey, this is the night to try that. So I did. It was fun. <laughs> Everybody, I spoke quite clearly. I didn't mumble it. Everybody got it quite well. So, so we, had, we kept off the evens and cow droppers that night. What would you say you know, to uh, Masons or people curious about Masonry who might be listening to this 10, 20, 50 years in the future? I'd be interested to know from them uh, wh what their impressions are of what the fraternity is at that point like, what their impression of it is. Uh, I'd be curious to know how much we have adapted some of our practices, not, not the ritual ones probably, not the ceremonial ones, not the, not the initiatic part, but how have we, how have we adapted to a different, a different type of socializing, which is I, what I think I have seen over the last 15 or so years. Uh, we're very much built on the model of uh, interacting personally with each other face to face. And more and more that's becoming uh, something that you can do over the internet, on social media. And even lodges have been formed. There's been, there's been an internet lodge um, in the English constitution system since, I think, sometime back in the 90s. 
they meet essentially on the internet. They don't do, I don't think they do everything that a lodge does, but the, the Grand Lodge of England decided to recognize an internet lodge. Mm. I'd be interested to know if, you know, how, how that has changed the way that lodges group, because our, our paradigm, my generation's paradigm, and previous generation's paradigm is a lodge is a bunch of guys that meet in some kind of a building, and that's where the work of the lodge goes on. And that, I don't know that that's going to hold terribly well. Uh, I'll keep the money surrounding that. Well, yeah, the buildings, the buildings age, and while they're, some of them are quite, you know, interesting architecturally and furnished beautifully, I mean, think of, think of some of the grand Masonic palaces that are still quite well kept, Philadelphia and New York. Um, think of some that, that have changed substantially over time, um, uh, Detroit. And the whole city's changed over time. Uh, and They're a giant music venue, though. They're constantly. Well, they, music. they have. I, don't, I haven't kept up with them. Yeah. Uh, I used to be. I used to be more active on a, an email uh, list where we generally got some updates. We had a, a member there who was quite active in uh, some of the management of the Detroit Temple, and I don't think he's contributing anymore. So I don't know what's going on there. But they yeah, have an Instagram, they have, they Instagram have page, so I'm subscribed to their Instagram page, and I get picture updates like yeah. at least once or twice a month. But I think I, I think most of the lodges, if not all of the lodges, have moved out of that building. I'm not sure there's a lodge still there. Maybe there is, and so there's some sort of a, you know management effort that goes on. Uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma, is another one. They're in a in a relatively small town. A, a fair distance from Oklahoma City as you drive in. Here's this very, very impressive building, beautifully decorated. You know, it just seems like it was perhaps deposited from a spaceship <laughs> as opposed to built. But, but that little town had Oklahoma history gone different. Could have been the capital. It was the capital briefly when it was a territory. Hmm. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, and I have heard the story, but I can't remember it. Um, for whatever reason, here's this really gorgeously well-decorated Masonic building in this little town in Oklahoma. It just it just looks again like it was you know deposited there by some other power in a place that just seems strange. Oklahoma thinks it's perfectly normal, but that's okay. <laughs> that's, you know they're they're entitled to look at it however they. It's an interesting place to go, and I've been there a few times and taken several tours and seen what it's like. It's impressive. You mentioned a couple of guys who were your uh, mentors coming in masonry. Um, have you made a lot of friends in masonry? I've certainly met a lot of people. I think I've made a, a quite a few good friends. Uh, my lodge still puts up with me um, much more readily than I ever thought they would. I should think I would have worn out my welcome by now, but they still seem to uh, occasionally want to ask me to do things. Uh, Are you a treasurer there? No, I don't no. hold any kind of an office. Okay. All right. Um, they're having a table lodge next week. They've asked me to be their speaker. When the master asked me, I said, "Really? Again? Me? Want to find somebody else?" Well, you know, a couple years ago, they did find some other people in conjunction with some other lodges. We participated in bringing a couple of guys from uh, Washington D.C. from Scottish Rite Spring Council out here. Oh, nice. Uh, so we got we had a, a couple of evenings. We had an evening at Scottsdale Lodge and an evening at my lodge where we got to listen to uh, Brent Morris and Art DeHoyos 
talk about whatever they, whatever they felt they should talk about, which was very interesting. And I got to have dinner with Brent and some other friends, and that was, that was fun too, so yeah, it was a great visit. So I'm just kind of surprised when my lodge, you know, says, we're doing this, would you, you know, we're doing the, we're, we're doing some teacher awards for the Mesa Public Schools. We've done this for a couple, three years. Would you, would you like to be MC again? Well, yeah, yeah, I've still got that streak of ham. If you want, to do it, if you want me to do it, I'm up for it. If you want me to be your speaker for a table lodge, I'll try to be brief. Probably briefer than I have been with this interview. And uh, but that's next, that's next Tuesday night. So I'm getting something prepared in the mental outline preparation area up there about what I'm going to talk about briefly. Now, they've been smarter this time. Bless them. God bless their little hearts. Uh, they have a, they have a musician coming who's going to play play for whatever portion of the program, and they have another guy coming who does another brother coming who does stand up. So that'll be good. Then mm -hmm. I don't have to also be the clown because I I can do that. So this way maybe I can you can play the straight man. This way I can yeah I can play Bud Abbott instead of Luke Costello. <laughs> and there's a reference that most of your listeners won't probably get. So any any closing thoughts or anything you want to leave us with? No, I think the thing I'd leave you with is if I'd known I was going to enjoy it this much, I would have started sooner. All right, Jim, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you very much for asking.